Hello, and welcome to the Weird Waves podcast. My name is Taylor, and this is episode 34. This week's episode, we are talking to Gray Robinson. He is predominantly a kiteboarder, but he's also involved in surfing. He is the creator and founder of Gray Wetsuits. They are seashell-based wetsuits. And in this episode, we really go in detail about, first of all, the history of kite surfing versus surfing versus windsurfing, which is something that I just really didn't know anything about. Then he really goes in detail about the technology involved in his wetsuits. It is an excellent episode and be sure to check that out, support him. I really think that products like these that are environmentally friendly are going to be the next big thing. Um, really keep an eye out for him and his brand and I really hope that you guys enjoy this episode. Good. How are you? Awesome. Yeah, here in Granada, Spain, a little ways away from the ocean. It's up mm-hmm. in the mountain. But uh, I have a kite surfing school in Tarifa, Spain, and another kite school in Cape Town, South Africa. Wow. And I have snow kite school here in, in Granada. Do uh, you know snow kiting? You can do. Yeah, I do. Um, we have a friend here in. Uh, I'm, I'm in Indiana. And oh, actually. Yeah. Our spot is way more popular for kite surfing and snow kiting than it is for surfing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, the on Lake Michigan, it's so windy. So there's tons of um actually our swells are only wind swells. So we surf on the lake, but there's no ground swells or anything. It's just all wind. Oh wow. Well, but like what size waves can you get rolling? You can get really big waves. I'll send you some videos. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of um, why we started the podcast. We started um, meeting all these interesting people surfing the lake. And most people don't start surfing the lake. They start somewhere else and then figure out that you can surf on the lake and then, you know, kind of figure that out. But kiteboarding here is different. A lot of people get into kiteboarding on the lake because it's a really, really great place to do it. Yeah, yeah. You got tons of wind. I mean, that's all you need, wind and water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> not, it's nice when you have a nice tropical beach. And I don't know if you guys have like a beach bar or something on the yeah. spot. Yeah, there's different sandbars um, all over. I think for the kiters, especially once it gets a little bit colder, is there's just no boat traffic. So they can do like up and down winders. I don't know all the terms, but they can go, you know, from one location like really far up because once it gets, you know, there's basically only three months where it's busy. And then the rest of the time, it's so cold here that people don't want to get on their boat. So there's no like disruption for them. It's really cool. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. I got to come out to Indiana one day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. We'll hook you up. We have a friend, um, Tyler. He actually gave my husband and I a lesson. It's not our thing. It was really fun to do the lessons. It's not our thing. But um, yeah. he he has a, a school here, too, where he teaches and he teaches snow kiting. And so that's how, how I heard about that. But um, maybe uh, if you could explain the basics of kiteboarding and then maybe snow kiting for our listeners in case they don't know anything about it. Yeah, you know, the basics are it takes around the quickest I've ever seen learn kiteboarding is five hours from beginner never flown a kite to upwind riding. So they're mm-hmm. independent. I've only in 20 years of teaching have only seen 
less than 10 students. The average is around 20 hours of lessons. So it depends on the lesson structure. Most lessons are, if it's a private lesson, one-on-one with the instructor, it's the fastest way to learn, obviously, because you have 100% of the uh, instructor's attention. Is each lesson's two hours. First lesson's kite control. So you would have, you said you had a lesson with your, with Tyler, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Yep. So you would have had a kite control lesson where you learn to master the kite skills. Yeah. It's all about bar control, which is the most important. Everything, your bar, obviously your bar and lines are attached to your kite. So, and your bar is attached to your harness. So we teach precision bar control, which once you know, you know, all your different skills of the kite, landing and launching, and flying the kite in the power zone, how you use the kite to generate power to ride on board. So once you do your first lesson, usually is on the beach, two hours kite control. Second lesson, you're in the water. You start water skills, which is body dragging without the board. So just your body using the kite the same way you would generate power to ride on the board. And you learn yeah, to generate that same power that you're going to need. Because once you put the board on, now you got two dimensions to think about. You have the kite, which is a human-sized kite, and you have your board dimension. So the trick is putting the two together. You know, lots mm-hmm. of people go, lots of people go Superman or Superwoman on their <laughs> first, you know, time they turn the kite into the power. So, you know, third lesson goes into board start and. There's tricks of the trade as instructors for getting students up on the board quickly because if you just leave a student in the water on his own attached to a kite and he doesn't have very good or she doesn't have very good kite control, lots of time they're spinning all over the place and the kite's in the water more than it's in the sky. You know, So what we do as instructors, if you have a good instructor, we go out into the water with you and you hold on to your harness. There's a handle on the back of the harness, and we uh, stabilize your body. So we just drag behind you as you have the board on, and you just practice turning the kite into the power a little, starting to stand up. But because we have our hands on the harness, we pull you back down. So you just learn that 10, 20, 30 times, starting to stand on the board. Once you can stabilize your body in the water, yeah, you have nice kite control, fine. Then we can let you go. And yeah, students start then standing and riding, third, fourth, fifth lesson. So usually, like I said, 20 hours and people are generally riding a good distance both directions. And then, yeah. The, um, in my experience, the kiting community has been way more friendly and open than the surfing community is and i'm wondering why you think that that is yeah that's i have a very good analogy on that one uh you know surfing i've also i mean super cool surfer guys and girls all over the world of course but when you're on a wave everybody is in one place trying to get that one wave everybody's fighting for that one line you know a wave is only so long and there's only so much space and depends how much people you have but you know you have your pro guy riders your local riders 
your beginners all on one wave. So it gets, you know, it's, it's about a, a space thing. <laughs> I think people <laughs> just get aggro when people obviously get in their way, you know, some catches a nice line and then some beginner cuts them off or even some good rider cuts them off. People who don't, <laughs> they don't appreciate that. With kiting, you're free to the wind. You can go wherever you want to go. You can move around. You have no, you know, yeah, like you come to a place like Tarifa, Spain, where my kite school is here. You have 3,000 kites on the water at once. So every 20 minutes, two kites are colliding together. So that happens. It's part of the, but, you know, people are generally friendly. So, yeah, I think it's about the freedom you have on a kite or surfing. Everybody's trying to line up on one wave. Uh-huh. And it even goes cross. Like, I've even had surfers yell at me. As a kiter? Are, but I think that was more out of jokes. <laughs> because i wasn't really in their way or their space i just came off their way for a big jump uh-huh. and and just well i think if you don't if you're not um familiar with it because i had never had kiters surfing in the same like kiters in the same area as i was surfing before until i came to the lake and it definitely freaked me out a couple times um because they can come pretty close to you, but in reality, I think kiters have a little bit more control because they're, I don't know, above, you know, like above us in a way where we're kind of totally dependent on the, like a set wave can come and totally just take you out and you can't really control that where it seems like the kiters are a little bit more dialed in. At least that's been my experience. So now I'm way more comfortable, but definitely (laughs) I can speak... I can understand why a surfer would maybe yell at a kiter if they don't understand the that that they're actually okay. <laughs> Relative, you know, it depends on the kite surfer too. Like I can't. That's true. There's a lot of yeah. Generally, the surfer's not in danger of a kite surfer, which is the most important. The other realm is wind surfers versus kite surfers. That's another interesting one because okay, you know. <laughs> Windsurfing and kitesurfing is more about old school and new school. So the windsurfers, you know, they were the first ones around 50 years ago. And kitesurfing's only come out in the last 23, 24 years. Oh, really? really? You know, it's been main, it's been really popular in the last 15, but it, it first kites were kind of around the late 90s, the first proper LEI, leading edge inflatable kites. But the interesting thing about windsurfers and kitesurfers, they all, they, any spot you go in the world, you have both. And because windsurfers were there first, they chose their spot on the beach. Uh-huh. But they always chose the downwind zone on the beach. So you got to think schools then set up their, their, their school on the beach. And students in the water, they go from upwind to downwind, right? Uh-huh. So they go... A student, that's why they're a student. They don't always have control. So if you have a student in an upwind position and they go downwind too far, of course, they're a student. They can't control it. They might end up going through the windsurfing zone, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're going from upwind. The wind's pushing them downwind. And lots of times, students go into the windsurfing zone. And windsurfers, 
don't like that <laughs> because <laughs> they want their line. Yeah. And it's just interesting that windsurfers never chose at the beginning the upwind. So many spots in the wind in the world, windsurfers chose a downwind spot on the beach. And then you get students <laughs> floating. <Right. through. laughs> well, but, that's, uh, that's interesting. I, um, I haven't known very much about that windsurfer versus kite surfer, but I do know that around in this area, especially you can get old kite surfing gear for like nothing, for whatever reason, it seems like it was really, really dying out. Like you can just like in Indiana, you can go on Craigslist and find like $50 and it's a whole, like it's from the eighties, but it's a windsurfing setup, you know, it's kind of cool. Um, do you know what caused the kind of change to happen or the change in what do you mean the change in popularity yeah it just it seems like kite like maybe kite surfing kind of took over that space i just don't hear about people windsurfing at all yeah i mean it's all like kite windsurfing is two-dimensional you know it's a two-dimensional sport so you can just turn the, the the wind surf sail on two and you're stuck to the water. I mean, if you look at pro riders windsurfing, they can do nice big jumps as well, technical stop, triple black flips. It's crazy what some windsurfers can do. But to get to that level of a windsurfer, you have to have been in the sport for a long, long time. With kite surfing, I've seen kiters go from beginner to pro in three years. There's not many sports in the world like surfing or snowboarding or windsurfing. I don't know any other sport in the world because a kite obviously gives you that upwards jump and loft and mm-hmm. big float. You can master the kite quickly and you have good uh, coordination and balance. I've seen, like I said, people learn, girls and guys, in a short period of time and mm-hmm. to a pro level. and. I think from windsurfing to kitesurfing, kites three-dimensional. It's so much, to me personally, and to any kiter, obviously, it's so much more fun. Like, you can jump, you can loft, you can fly in the air for 15 seconds and, and just do crazy aerial acrobatic stuff that on a windsurf, you can't get that big air the same as a kite. And, mm. you, and it takes a lot longer to do freestyle on a windsurf. And a wood on a kite. So definitely the new younger generation all looked at a kite and were like, wow, I want to do that. Yeah. It just looked so much. And that's yeah. part of the, what's the right word? The, you know, it's pretty chill, but there's a underlying aggro, aggressive nature on some beaches around the world between wind servers and kite servers. And I think jealousy <laughs> again <laughs> kite surfing is just so young and cool and it takes yeah. the show everyone you know it just looks spectacular to watch where windsurfing is i'm sure super fun to do but yeah so it's interesting between surfing and windsurfers and kite surfing and windsurfers the the you know the the beach culture Mm-hmm. Uh, how you know and i think in general 
surfers are super down to earth, chilled out. You totally. know, it's a nature sport. So as long as you don't get in a surfer's way and piss them off, then they're super happy. <laughs> how did so, how did you get into um, this whole? We'll just call it lifestyle, I guess. Yeah, kite sir. I got my first kite in Bermuda, where I'm from. My family um, is from, so 20 years ago, and. I, t- I learned, taught myself, because there were no instructors really in the world back then. And after learning in Bermuda, then my other home, West Coast Canada, I got to a level where I was pretty good. And so I started, I took off first trip to Barbados to teach kite surfing. And then I realized there was a whole culture out here in the world. <laughs> and then... I went to Thailand and I went to Ireland and I went, I kept on going all over the world, South Africa. So uh, once you start traveling in the kite surfing world, you start seeing the same people, you know, from you meet some couple in Ireland and next thing, you know, maybe you keep in contact with them or maybe you don't and you just happen to let into them in Cape Town a year later. <laughs> And, you know, it's that same people you had, you know, you had drinks with at the bar in Cape and Ireland. Now you're in a whole new culture and it's amazing. It's a small but big circle too. You know, there's a lot of kiters in the world now, but it's an amazing circle all over the world of, in the kite surfing world. It's the big places like three for Spain, Cape Town, South Africa, Maui, Hawaii. You know, uh, Sri Lanka is going off now. Before a guy in the Philippines, Brazil, the whole north coast of Brazil. You know, islands in the Caribbean. It's it's, it's such an incredible culture <laughs> behind the sport of kite surfing, and everyone's just living the dream. <laughs> That's all they're <laughs> doing what they love. You know, travel. Maybe some people have their full-time job. Some you know, There's lots of people that, well, obviously lots of instructors and people in the industry, and they just stay. You know, they, they do one season in the Northern Hemisphere, the wind, winter, the summer season in the Northern Hemisphere, and then they go to the Southern Hemisphere for their, you know, if, for the instructors. And, and, yeah, lots of school owners who have schools like the same, maybe a school in Tarifa, Spain, and a school in Brazil. So they have, because if you have a school in the Northern Hemisphere, you only have six months of business, because in the winter it's pretty quiet and dead. So they have another school in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's a year long round. So it's, yeah. You, you said you did first lesson, no? You. Yeah. Got good control in your first lesson? Yeah, we were doing like um body drags is what it's called, right? Yeah, yeah, you got you like, Yeah, it was really cool. It was a very um it was a totally different experience from surfing. Like it was just insanely different. Um it was really cool. It felt I don't even know. It felt less like I was interacting with the water and more like I was interacting with wind, which I guess makes sense. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was really really cool. 
It was a cool yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but you, you, you said you, you and your husband, not really your thing, but you, you wouldn't want to go to the next level. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe if we if we thought about trying it again, you know, we could try it again. I think it's just so different from surfing, like, um, which I didn't expect. There's so much gear and there's so much setup to kind of like there's like a whole ritual beforehand, which is really cool. But with surfing, you just grab your board and you jump in the water. You know, it's like (laughs) it's so simple. And um I think for us, at, especially at the time when we had taken the lesson, we had invested so much already into winter surfing on Lake Michigan, which is like four different types of wetsuits for every season, all the different boards and everything, that the thought of like uh, trying to conquer another sport and all that gear, it just seemed really overwhelming, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. I know. Com- com- compared to the simplicity of surfing, yeah, grab your surfboard and your leash, jump in the water. There's not much to forget, you know. Kite surfing, yeah, you know. I've say on the west coast Canada, where I'm from in Victoria, I've driven three and a half hours up the island because it was like amazing wave and swell. And we got to the spot, and it was pumping. It was an amazing. And we forgot the pump. <laughs> you know the pump to pump up the kite <laughs> there is no option you know so we even took a coke two liter coke and we put it to the back of the exhaust of the car no way we tried it <laughs> didn't work obviously we got some some inflation but not not enough so yeah you know so much more equipment than kite yeah you know, it's uh i think i could see it like it the setup being really quick if you have like have it down to a science um like again like i said our friend tyler he's totally he's the one who gave us the lesson he you can tell he gets everything sorted really quickly and even for his lessons he has everything down so it doesn't look as complicated but um it definitely felt really complicated when we were first watching everybody get set up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, like anything, with time and right. being in it, yeah, it's you know, I can get to the beach and be fully set up in twenty minutes, like yeah, tight bumps, barn lines. Right. So, uh, so you yeah. said you're from Barbados and also Canada. Can you maybe explain that? How how does that work? You you grew up between two Bermuda. countries? Oh, Bermuda. Bermuda. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Grew, grew born and raised in Bermuda until I was 12. Okay. So, and then, but it's a very small island, you know, mm-hmm. in the middle of the Atlantic. Decent wind in the winter, but uh, like I set up my, so, and then I moved to Canada when I was 12. My mom, brother, and sister to Victoria, BC, Canada, on Vancouver Island. And yeah, that was when I got exposed to the great outdoors. And, you know, that was what was my starting point in extreme sport. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, then I went, I started, you know, I, like I said before, I started my learning to kite surf in Bermuda, but I mastered riding and back in Canada. So I was in Bermuda for one summer and I spent another year in Canada. Okay. I got to a good level and then I tried to start a school in Bermuda. But I realized pretty quick the wind, you know, you have tons of tourists and in the summer, 
but there's out of six months of summer, there's less than two weeks of wind. And then in the winter, you have wind all winter long, but you have no tourists. <laughs> mm-hmm. So for a business point of view, it didn't really work. <laughs> and how so, old were you when you tried to start your first school? 26. Okay. Yeah. So I'm 43 now. And yeah, and then I, yeah, so I did, like I said, I took off globally teaching kite surfing all over the world. And then I found the best places to set up, uh, which is, is Tarifa. Is the, Tarifa, Spain is all of Europe comes to Tarifa to learn kite surfing. It's amazing culture, like Spanish culture as well as tons of wind and uh and yeah so set up the first school there and then linked our website to another school in cape town and kept on building (laughs) you know we have two snow kite schools one in canmore near banff in canada in the canadian rockies yeah have you been no but i i have some friends in that area that's cool A super beautiful spot. And so my instructor friend that I was teaching with for a year when I was in Canmore nine years ago, he runs my operation there. And then I have a team in Tarifa managing, like a manager and instructors in Tarifa and the same in Cape Town. So, so we built the, the kite brand, uh, Grey Kite. and. Now we've got the schools operating. We've gone out to launch our own uh, product line, which is seashell wetsuits and bikinis and board shorts, all eco-friendly. So we're now trying, you know, we, we want to have the school, the physical schools with the instructors, but the shops selling our own brand of environmentally friendly product line and mm-hmm. yeah so it's uh are you gonna try to do um direct to consumer or are you going to try to go the retail route with the wetsuits yeah we're well we're coming up we're launching officially two weeks from now on kickstarter uh, oh awesome yeah so right now yeah we've pulled together BTB, business to business, like a global list of, so we're going to do retail direct with customer on, off the website. Um, we already have eight, nine distributors now wanting to work with us already. We haven't even come to our official launch yet. And so, yeah, we want to, you know, we want to keep with quality is the most important and environmental friendly. That's the whole core values of the company is, you know, my years of teaching kite surfing and having, you know, my students' safety over all these years of teaching kite surfing is priority. It's, you know, their lives in a sense are in my hand, you know, with teaching students to kite surf, you know, and then having them to put on petroleum-based wetsuits, you know, like so many people in the world have allergies to these you know petroleum it's basically a piece of oil 
Mm -hmm. depending on your body, <laughs> like literally. So that was the, uh, well, what really happened was a year and a half ago, I broke both my legs. I had an accident. I fell seven meters. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so I was in a wheelchair for six months, and then I've been steadily getting back on my feet. So I'm I'm now back walking, <laughs> but it's been a long haul. So because I used that time I had um, to put together, like build, launch, find the top manufacturers in the world uh, that produce sustainable, um, you know, so our, like, like you, you know, our wetsuits are made out of seashells. So they use the calcium carbonate. Uh, from seashells and the seashells are recycled from the food industry. Oh. Yeah. So we're not diluting the beaches and you know, we're not going down to the beach and taking tons of seashells off, <laughs> off the beaches. It's the recent, the recycled seashells from the food industry. Like clams and scallops and exactly. stuff like that. Oyster. Oysters. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. And so there, you know, there's another technology of, there's only four technologies of wetsuits in the world. One is petroleum based. The other is Ulex, which is Havia from a rubber tree. Mm -hmm. So Patagonia, if you're familiar with that brand, yeah, they produce Ulex wetsuits, but they're very soft and they're not high performance for surfers. Mm -hmm. They're very environmentally friendly and beautiful wetsuits. But they don't have the high performance and, you know, very soft wetsuits, easy to rip. And, yeah, and I've then, heard that, that issue that they can basically just fall apart and it's hard to repair them as well. Yeah, exactly. You need a tube of yeah, U rubber. Ulex because yeah. what you would usually typically use to repair them, it, it doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. I've never, never actually had a, used a Ulex wetsuit, but, uh, and then the, the third technology is limestone. So limestone and seashells are essentially the same thing. Limestone using the calcium carbonate from limestone, same as seashells. But the thing with limestone is it takes a lot of petrochemicals to mine it. Mm. You know, the mountain in Japan that they mine for the, the limestone. So it uses a lot of petrochemicals to mine the limestone and you're bulldozing down the side of the mountain. So it's not exactly the most environmentally friendly. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's very high performance. So it's, 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 it's called Yamamoto limestone neoprene. It's a Japanese manufacturer. So Yamamoto is known to be the most high performance wetsuit in the industry mm -hmm. made of limestone. And now the new technology of seashell. So it's the same, yeah, using the calcium carbonate. And it's just more sustainable because it's no new bag. We're just recycling seashells that would otherwise go to the landfill. So we're not making any bag. We're not bulldozing down a mountain, not using petrochemicals to mine it. And then it does undergo a, a chemical process. Mm -hmm. uh, the chloroprene, you know, so it goes through a chemical process, but the base bulk weight of the wetsuit, so the weight of the wetsuits remains from a natural source. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you, there's like an additive or something, uh, like a small amount of additive in order to make this the like material that makes up the wetsuits. Is that what you're saying? It's an additive chemical process. Yeah. It's oh, a, okay. A, it's more of a, a process. Yeah, that you know they then bake it in ovens mm-hmm. and form chloroprene, chloroprene rubber chip, chips <laughs> and then yeah so but the key important thing is it does go through a chemical process which chemicals are added but the bulk main ingredient of the wetsuit the weight of your wetsuit is mm. from a natural source or if you put on a petroleum based wetsuit the bulk weight that you're holding in your hand the weight of it is, is oil is mm-hmm. petroleum so it's it's you know, it's a dirty um, ingredient inside. And and then what's also important on the wetsuits is the, the material applications. So that's the foam. The foam is made from seashells or limestone, ulex. And then is what you apply to the foam. Uh, we use recycled uh, nylons, polyesters. Oh. Everything's recycled. Uh, and because that's you know if on the inside of the core of a wetsuit it's called thermal smoothie it, it usually it's a red color and it, it's nice and soft and it's thick and it gives the core body heat uh, so we use recycled materials applied to the seashell wetsuit foam and then we use water-based glue instead of petroleum-based glues. So everything from the foam to the material application process and the materials and the glue all remains environmentally friendly as possible. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. How did you find the idea? Like, how did, or did, did this technology, it already existed? Yeah, exactly. The technology exists uh it just came um it's a so to go right down the rabbit hole the same manufacturer that you like uh, patagonia had a third-party manufacturer and that third-party manufacturer in china they produced the ulex for patagonia but i believe at that point patagonia then started their own factory mm-hmm. and for their own production of their own ULEX. So that third-party manufacturer said, okay, well, they already have the technology and the expertise in producing. So they seeked and found this new technology. You know, oh, so it, okay. was the, it was the original manufacturer of ULEX for Patagonia. And once Patagonia left, they seek to find a new technology that's more sustainable and high performance interesting so yeah that's so cool are the wetsuits glued and stitched seams like do you have that option i'm curious what material you use like you know in between um the seams if you have that yeah and we do blind stitching so Mm-hmm. high performance and it's a uh, in between the seams is an environmentally friendly glue okay uh, so 
I actually have a few videos I can send to you. Of, yeah, that would be great. Of our production process. And, uh, yeah. So, it, what's key is you want environmentally friendly, still want high performance. Mm-hmm. That's the critical point because, you know, surfers need high performance, whether you kite surfers. So, it's, it's, then it's all about, you know, creating, uh, anatomically structured wetsuits that the stitching is in the right places. Like, so, you know, your core body area has no stitching. And so if you want to move your arms and your legs, you have maximum freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a process of learning for me, finding, seeking, a new technology, like this technology, then designing and constructing the wetsuits. Mm-hmm. It's been a, I've had one and a half years in a wheelchair. <laughs> well, wow. More left on my, on my ass to, to put this together. So It's a really good idea. What is the cost uh, comparison to, uh, like from a traditional wetsuit to your wetsuits? Well, we know one thing. Our, we know for sure what our cost is on Kickstarter right now, which is going to be 40% off our retail, roughly. So we're launching on Kickstarter 270 US for one of the high-performance wetsuits, the full-body Athena. is mm-hmm. one. Athena is the women's or Savage or Bio2Elemental. So, you know, and it depends. If you look at a top of line Billabong wetsuit, you're looking around 350 to 450. If you look at, you know, Patagonia's Ulex wetsuits, you're looking between 400. You need know, some lower, lower price. But for their high quality wetsuits, mm-hmm. you're looking at 850 for the Ulex Patagonia, 850, even up to 9, 950. For Billabong, if you want one of their high, high, high quality wetsuits, you're looking at 556, 650. So mm-hmm. ours, I, we're looking right now between 450 and 500 US. And this is for what millimeter? It will be any thickness. Any, any thickness. Okay. So three, you're. Three, okay. four, three, five, four. That's awesome. Six, so it's yeah. not, it's like you're not getting into like the lower. Um, space. You're going in high performance with an eco edge, and that's like your price. Exactly. But we will, after Kickstarter, after we finish relaunch, we'll put a entry level wetsuit, still is environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. But you know, it it's all the bells and whistles that you put onto a wetsuit, all the uh, different process of lamination for the different material applications. That's what brings the price up in the wetsuit. You know, when you add thermal smoothie, when you add glide skin, neck and ankle and wrist seals, like high quality, high quality seals. You know, these things are, so we'll still, as we officially launch, we'll come out with an entry level wetsuit, which will be probably in the 250 to 300 US mark. Right now, yeah, what's that? It's just it's just a really interesting concept. Have you are you familiar with Hyperflex's uh green preen 
Have you seen that product? How would yours compare to that? Actually, it's the same material. (laughs) They're the 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 only other one. They're the only other one. He, I forget his name. I just stumbled upon his brand the a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it looks like I'm not sure how Hyperflex is set up, but yeah, it looks yeah, it looks like Hyperflex is a triathlon style wetsuit, and then whichever this it looks like he's in his 30s, uh, young guy, super good. I saw him do a promo. Oh, ben Gravy. Yeah, is that his name? Yeah, Ben Gravy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds super awesome. Like I saw him in a trade show doing a a video, and yeah, so he's landed the same same materials we have. So I don't think what's that? Yeah, we um, we kind of we don't really know Ben, but we know one of the guys that works for Hyperflex. He was actually on. It's not Ben Gravy's brand, actually. He's just the spokesperson of it. Um, I guess it started as a like the spearfishing uh, triathlon wetsuits, and then it expanded into the surfing um, market. And they're really big in our area. They've put a lot of focus on the Great Lakes when we were definitely really underserved. The last couple of years, no one was really taking us seriously. And they kind of did, which was really smart. And I just know that they launched that product. So I was just curious yeah. how those two compare. So it's a, it's the same in terms of material. It's the same foam technology. Yeah. We get a foam technology from the same manufacturer. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It seems like yours might be different in the design. Pretty different in the design, though. Yeah, I mean, then there's lots. Once you have the foam, you order the foam in bulk, right? Then you also order from different factories in Japan and China all your other laminated material compositions, whether you're doing thermal smoothie or everything you're going to build your wetsuit too so it, just because you have a foam okay great it's environmentally friendly that's the most important now his construction and our construction are going to be there's going to be vast similarities there's only so much you can do with a wetsuit <laughs> right right but there are going to be slight differences in in different application processes and obviously just the design work so mm-hmm. yeah that's but so that's cool. cool that you mentioned that because he's, you know, I, I know there's only a handful of small brands in the world that have this right now. I know what's above market with them, with this product. And I know it's just me and, well, yeah, as far as I know, I, when I've researched <laughs> and have team researching, it's just Hyperflex and, and us right now coming out with this movie. Yeah, I think that... Uh... It was kind of an interesting angle for Patagonia um, to do the Ulex, but I think it really underperformed. And also the the wetsuits, they just don't last. So it's like it is environmentally friendly in the term that it's um, the material is. But if it's lasting like not even a quarter of the time as a traditional wetsuit is, then it's also pretty – it's not – it's kind of the impact becomes a little higher in terms of on the environment so i think that 
they've kind of struggled with that. It's been interesting to see the different um, people take that idea and run different directions. So that's that's exactly why I reached out to you when I saw you posted on um, Facebook because I'm like, this is amazing. I need to know as much about this as possible because it's just such an awesome idea. Yeah, it's you know in this time and age, you know, countries banning plastic, the world wanting to move away from fossil fuels, the how bad a wetsuit, <laughs> the production manufacturing of a wet, petroleum based wetsuit really is, is, is and the amount of resource and energy it takes to create is, <laughs> it's a bad piece of kit <laughs> for the environment. <laughs> really, really, really. So it's great to see now, yeah, that there's options, you know, for still having high performance and environmentally friendly. And then, we have other product lines, you know, we have like bikinis made out of Vita by Carvisio, which is a recycled Italian nylon, super high, super high quality uh, nylon, but very environmentally friendly, all recycled. Uh, board shorts, high performance, you know, really high quality board shorts made of recycled material, recycled polyesters. And, and so we're pushing for a complete uh, beachwear water sports apparel line uh, with all being environmentally any recycled materials or so it's not only the wetsuits have been a lot of work the bikinis and the, <laughs> and the board shorts getting the right manufacturers you know who because lots of times they don't have, if you want a high, high quality manufacturer, they might not have the recycled materials that you want to use, but you want their services because their expertise in producing the most high quality board shorts is par to none. So then we have to seek the materials elsewhere and send to their factory. And so it's a process. <laughs> it's a, a lot of work. That's amazing, though. What a you took kind of a shitty situation and turned it into something awesome. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It was the last year and a half have been yeah the most challenging year and a half of my life. Yeah, it turned a negative into a positive, and and yeah, I'm, I'm glad I used those that time. You know, not just watching Netflix or. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was working day and night, 60, 70 hours a week. Like I didn't stop. There was nothing else to do. And I just, I went at it and it came through. Yeah. I'm, we're excited to be where we are. And uh, we're in our final touches to, we've already been accepted by Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And we're just getting the final uh, marketing strategy. And we'll be live in two weeks. So that's incredible. Yeah. Congratulations. That's so cool. Yeah. Thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's an amazing platform Kickstarter really like, you know, how it, it's developed from, you know, years of companies getting to a point where, okay, now I'm above water. We have a website, we have a company, we have a, a 
product or a service, but then what? Okay, yeah, you can start marketing, but just to have Kickstarter as the next level, it just puts you really out. You know, obviously, you know Kickstarter well. Do you know Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've um, I've backed personally. I think a couple of different projects. Um, oh wow. That have been just like small things. I think one was, um, it was cool actually. It was a cup that you put in your car, um, in your like cup holder, and you put all your uh, spare pieces of wax in there. And so when your car is hot during the day, your spare pieces of wax melt into one bar of wax. It was like ten dollars, and um, okay. actually, I think I lost it in a move somewhere. I actually need to order another one, but I thought that was like what an amazing idea, and it got way more response than it was like two guys in college or something, and they just came up with the idea, and then it got you know whatever five times what they were asking for. It's just cool if you if you know your community and you're solving a problem, then people will rally behind you with their money. It's really cool. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, and in the, you know, where we're at now to see, hopefully this, I, I'm hoping you know, we're going to be at a big new with our new generation coming up, you know, with hopefully environmentally friendly and, you know, moving away from fossil fuels initiatives and hopefully we're looking at a new era because something's got to change in the near, you know, with where we're at in this day and age. Well, I sitting, definitely was, think... Was sitting in, what's that, Sam? Oh, sorry. I I think as a people that enjoy the ocean, we're on the... and the lakes and rivers and any body of water, but I guess the environment in general it becomes a little bit hypocritical for us to tell people to stop using plastic straws when our wetsuits are made out of oil and our post-production of our surfboards are, you know, one of the most harmful things in the environment, the waste and all that stuff. So I think coming to a solution like this is something that people will really start to... um rally around because i think you know there's until we are as environmentally friendly as we want other people to be as like an industry we it's kind of hard for us to tell other people (laughs) what to do you know yeah and it's interesting because surfers are generally and kiteservers and windsurfers that are so down to earth and they just want to be in touch with nature and play their sport and live a lifestyle. But then, like you said, we get stuck with these petroleum oil based wetsuits and these surfboards that are, you know, so chemically <laughs> built, constructed, not good for the environment. Yeah, even in our playtime. So yeah, if we can move away in every realm, it'd be amazing to see in surfboards if they can find a, is there such a technology, do you know, or they're definitely they're working on stuff for sure. I know that um, there's way more recycling happening in terms of like just repairing a board instead of getting a new board on a constant basis is something that is helpful. I know there's a couple of different resins 
that um, are and epoxies that are way more eco-friendly. They just uh, they take longer to cure than the traditional um, resins and stuff. I know a couple of people are starting to use bamboo as like the stringer and then also the wooden uh, surfboards because it's light so it's definitely moving moving in that direction different foam as well i forgot someone was telling me about um going away from the eps foam blanks and into something made out of i forgot what it was i don't want to say because then it'll be the wrong thing but um I think if there's people that want to take it there and try it out and try new things and they have that idea, I think in the next 10 years, we'll start to see, we'll see a lot of changes in what products we use because people want to pay for it too. People, they want, they want to feel good about the things that they're buying. Of course. And the environment and your body, something like (laughs) You know, think of the difference of having donning a piece of oil or donning a piece of seashells. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's a completely, your body and the environment, like, which is one and inevitably, but yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, surfboard, like with kiteboards, we make the, Inlay the inlay of the, the kiteboard. You can make it like bamboo, like the complete base of the core. But then, a lot of the time, you know, they're using pretty nasty fiberglass and adhesive, like like you're saying. So, yeah, I think in a period of time, someone's going to come up with an eco-friendly surfboard. You know, there, I saw in out of Central America now they got six-pack holders, like the what would normally be the plastic part. Mm-hmm. Instead of strangling turtles, it's edible for turtles. Oh, that's <laughs> so if cool. It ends up in the, if it ends up in the ocean, it, it won't. It's food. Yeah, it's food. So somebody in Central America just came up with that technology. I don't know if it can be done for surfboards, but an edible surfboard would be <laughs> <laughs> would be something to see. If, that's true. Yeah. It's just it's exciting to see and it's exciting to talk to someone like you who has taken an idea and ran with it. It's just very um it's really interesting and you can tell that you're very passionate and also very knowledgeable about what you're what product you're putting out into the world. It's it's very very cool. Yeah, it's been a learning process and I'll keep on learning. <laughs> <There's> never, <laughs> you know. There's never time to stop learning. So, yeah. And uh, what's that? Just trying to get my dog. dog. Nice. German (laughs) Shepherd? Yeah, he's a a puppy, so he's still needs some attention. Um, But um, I was going to ask, how do you balance your kite schools? I think that must be really challenging if you have them in a bunch of different locations a bunch of different time zones <laughs> yeah well i mean right now i do i just do the online administration web-based stuff so i have managers like quality instructors that i took from the be you know good friends of mine that were good instructors the best of the best 
and that basically made them the managers of my schools. <laughs> so I can trust that they can run and they do run my schools. They run the instructors very well. <laughs> it's all about, you know, uh, it's about teaching highly progressive lessons, but it's not just the lessons. It's also it's a whole holiday experience that we give our clients. So we, we do everything from there. They, we book them into their accommodation. Or pretty soon, what our, what our goal is right now, we have the schools. We have the brands coming up of, of, of apparel lines. So we can fill our shops with our own boutique shops. And we want to start take uh, build villas. So we'll do the accommodation. So we'll be our own villa, our own boutique shop of our own brand, and our own school with our own instructors. Mm-hmm. So it's a win-win-win. You you take the complete, you you cater to the complete holiday. You know, when somebody books from another country and they come to your school to learn, they book online. Yeah, if you can give them the whole package, the whole holiday experience. So what we will have is we'll have activities managers that not only that organizes their lessons. And get some sort of, you know, connected with the instructor and hit the beach, but also does other activities in the area, like, um, takes them out on other biking trips or different activity things you can do in the local area. That's what we want to do, uh, where we're going towards. So when people come, they have the whole package experience. Uh, but yeah, we're, once we're above water with some brand of wetsuits, we're gonna then be looking towards villas. So, yeah. Sounds like an amazing plan. Yeah, <laughs> if, if people can have, you know, like if if the thing about kite surfing schools around the world is it's hit and miss. You can show up at one school okay if you have a great owner of a school but you have a lousy instructor who's lazy and doesn't know how highly progressive lessons you would rather have a lazy not very nice owner and a top quality instructor because of okay. top quality instructors <laughs> but the thing is you want to have both you want to have everything catered to and in the kite surfing world it's hit and miss all over the world there's so many independent owners of kite schools and some are really good and some aren't and some are very new, green into the sport, and their instructors are new and green, and you know it's it's different levels. So if you can have a, a global brand of highest progressive level, high quality, uh, people will stay in your brand. You know they'll they maybe they come to Tarifa for one kite serving holiday in the summer. And then they have such an amazing experience. They come to a school in Cape Town in the winter, you know, and then they'll have an amazing experience there. So they come to a school in Brazil and they get to see different places of the world, learn in different conditions, mm-hmm. but have the same quality experience. That's what we're working towards. That's so, incredible. That is yeah. just, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's totally true, especially when you want, when you want to progress, like, um, through any sport, whether it's, you know, kiteboarding, surfing, any, any sport like that, I think you can get a basic level 
maybe it won't be great, but it can teach you the basics almost anywhere in the world. But for that second step, I feel like it's so hard to find that, to find some, because everybody needs lessons is just kind of in any sport you can benefit from having a lesson. But it's such a good idea to have a standard quality in multiple locations all over the world so you know whenever you go, you're going to get the same level no matter if you're, you know, taking whatever step five or you're at step one or step three that um, that's just it's really smart. Yeah. It's. uh, And and yeah, it. It gives the clients an amazing, you know, uh, trusted experience. Like, again, if you did have, if you did end up at a school, you know, you do book a holiday off a website and land at a school and it was a bad experience, who knows what your next decision is going to be. Maybe you don't want to go, maybe that experience was so bad, you don't want to keep on going in the sport. You know, that's the worst case scenario. But, yeah, if, if, it's it's the industry is still very young, you know. In a school, in a place like Tarifa, Spain, where my big my main school is, there's a lot of schools there. There's 50 schools. It's the mecca of kite surfing in the world, like I said, and there's a lot of competition. But inevitably, the high quality schools stay, and the you know the lower quality schools slowly kind of dwindle away or they but it's it's uh yeah it's it's all about your team that's the most important just having a super dynamic team that you can trust in your managers and your managers were instructors so they know everything about everything to do with teaching and the and then yeah then you have an amazing administration that can book your whole client's holiday and make it, you know, go off with a bang and put it all into play. (laughs) It's like, it's like playing, you know, being a a conductor of an orchestra. What's it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It is. That's all I am. It's just a conductor now. A conductor. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. So what is the weirdest wave you have ever surfed? Or, yeah, the, or, I guess the weirdest, if you want to take it in a kiteboarding area, I don't know how you want to frame that question, but you, you want to hear the weirdest experience, then yeah, that it's a sounds wave. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it is a wave. It's a wave of uh, yeah, an experience that made international press. <laughs> uh, I was in Tofino, West Coast, Canada. So it's a major surf town. Probably lots of your podcast listeners know it's in Canada. How many major surf destinations are there? Tofino on the west coast of Vancouver Island is probably is definitely the number one spot in Canada, and very tourist town as well. So I was guiding. They were filming the O'Neill Qualwater Classic surf competition on the beach that day, and I was just jumping around. This is nine years ago, maybe ten years ago. And my kite crashed, no big deal. Normally, you just relaunch the kite out of the water, but it inverted. Uh, so it was I couldn't relaunch it, put it that way. And it was side shore wind. I 
had two choices. Like, so the kite would have just been pulling me towards there. There's uh, two beaches and they're separated by a cliff line of a hundred foot cliffs, about a kilometer long. And I could have ditched the kite and swam to the beach and been fine. But I it was a $2,000 kite, brand new. I wanted my kite. So I did self-rescue, which is you pull yourself to your kite. You lie on your kite. You make a sail out of the kite in the water. So you hold two of the strings, and it's like a nice little sail, and you can glide along the water without any effort. And I was going to go on the outside of the breakers, and on that day, it was about two-and-a-half meter, three-meter breakers slamming into the cliffs. So many surfers have died in that spot. Many tourists standing on the rocks every year. Not many, many, but I think there's one or two every year or something get smashed off the rocks and there's people that die in that spot you don't want to be in the inside of those waves going into the cliffs put it that way and i was three quarters of the way to the other beach going on the outside of the breakers calm and collective everything was fine sunny and i'm seeing people up on the cliffs and i can see people with cell phones in their hand and i'm giving thumbs up like i held my two thumbs up in the sky for like a minute to say i'm okay i'm okay no problem and I knew they were panicking, calling, like, you know, first responders, whatever. So next thing you know, a oversized Canadian Coast Guard boat, like Zodiac, you know, quarter million dollar Coast Guard boat comes flying in, or not flying in, like on the water, flying in, <laughs> driving fast, and says, get on the boat, get on the boat. And I yell, I'm like, well, my kite, my kite. And they said, no, get on the boat. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to argue with the Coast Guard in the situation. So I swam to the boat and I got on the boat and the girl drove over my kite and it oh. seized the props of the boat. So now the boat seized. So it's a girl and a man guy on the coast guard. So I'm on the boat. I know once I saw the kite suck up in the engine, I know I've seen this before. I are done. I'm like yelling. We have to jump now. We have to jump because we're maybe a hundred meters from where the waves start breaking. And then it goes into the cliffs. And then we have to get off now. We have to be yelling at me. No, no. And I'm yelling. And finally, the last wave picks the boat. The last, just as we hit the wave, there's a picture. You know, there's now I think some of the professional photographers from the O'Neill Color Classic were up that end of the beach taking photos. And there's a picture of me jumping. You know, if you Google Gray Robinson, Tofino Coast Guard Rescue, the story will come up. <laughs> and there's a picture of me jumping off the boat with half my legs out of the water torso inside anyways and the next picture is of the two coast guard standing on the boat and the next wave coming in which might have been about a meter and a half or something so you can see the two coast guards standing on the boat inside the breakers going into the cliffs <gasps> and you know i'm i can see them like getting smashed i got smashed by a wave i can see them and then, you know i was crying at that point i knew i was I knew we were in some serious trouble. <laughs> I was crying and thinking, oh, God, this is going to be. And so I next picture from the top of the cliffs, you can, there's no Coast Guard on the boat anymore. And then that wave smashed them off the boat. And then I can hear from my point of view, the boat slamming into the cliffs. And the spot that they got pushed into, we got pushed into, it's the only spot. It's called Honeymoon Point between Chesterman Beach and Cox Bay and Tofino. And it's the only spot where the cliffs dip down from about 100 feet to about 30 feet. And it has a little bit of a grade, like a 45-degree angle. So 
I saw the Coast Guard clamor to the rocks. Maybe they got pulled out once or twice and then clamor again. But I saw them come out at that point. So I knew they were okay. So I was like, oh. So I wasn't going to go in there. I kept on swimming lateral, trying to duck dive waves. Finally, I got pushed into the other cliffs. And, you know, I fought for, uh, I'd say, three minutes. It was questionable. <laughs> so it's not weird more than scary. It's scary and weird. And I, yeah, I managed to come around the point. And right when you come around the point of rocks, it's just going towards the sandy beach. At that point, there was at least 500 to 800 people on the beach. Like people from the O'Neill Coldwater Classic Surf Competition came up. All the paramedics of Tofino, the fire trucks, the ambulances, the police, everyone was there. You know, Canadian Coast Guard helicopter comes over above. And I'm just, I come to the beach and I puked a couple times because I swallowed water. And yeah, you know, I couldn't handle it. I was just too distraught. So I swam back out to the boat because <laughs> the boat dislodged from the rocks and it was sinking a bit. So I jumped on the boat. It was out kind of going sideways over down the beach line. And I, I rode the boat in with the oar. Anyway, so in the end, everyone was okay. And uh, it was a pretty major traumatic experience for everyone even you know i had a meeting with the coast guard the next day and then it was pretty heavy like they were local tofino you know it's a small town the, the coast guard and it was yeah so i guess weird turned into scary all of a sudden <laughs> well so one good thing that i believe came of that though is they like i ex explained to them what should have happened like they they did the rescue upwind of me right mm -hmm. so but kite they didn't even know what kiting was they didn't know what kite was at that point this was maybe 14 years ago 13 years ago i think and so they should have done the rescue now i believe they wrote a protocol for rescue canadian coast guard because of my experience because of my situation and if they because they did upwind, their boat floated once I was trying to climb on downwind into the kite. If they would have done mm. the downwind of me of the kite and me, that's the most important thing. If they would have done a downwind, I would have swam to the boat, and then they wouldn't drive drove over the kite. So, or if they would have just not tried to rescue you, right? I mean, isn't that do you think you would have been okay without help? Like, were you were you doing an okay self-rescue? Well, this is all, like, I was totally fine. I yelled oh, at them. My I God. don't need help. I said, I'm okay, I'm okay. Like, I used thumbs up to the people on the cliffs, like, pulling. I can tell they were panicking. And, and the whole thing was just extreme fast. And, you know, I didn't want to argue with the Coast Guard. Like, I went on... One was that uh, a major um, radio station for Canada, whatever that is. It's been so long since I've been back in Canada. Probably, what's the biggest radio station in Canada? I have no idea. Uh, I was on that. So <laughs> okay. the next day, I'll look yeah, it up. The next day, uh, they did an interview, and 
with me and what kind of, you know, I have the most respect for the Canadian Coast Guard. And, you know, every day they put their lives on the line for people and they did for me. And one thing turned into another and it was, we almost all died. <laughs> but what can I say? I'm not, so, you know, the, the media wanted to spin it like, oh, the Canadian Coast Guard did a botched rescue. That's what they said. Oh, it was a botched rescue. Everyone knew I didn't need help. Everyone knows me in the town of Tofino and knows the deal, what really happened. But on the radio, I was like, Canadian Coast Guard put everything on the line for me. I have the deepest respect. You know, it was an extreme situation, which it was. And they didn't know what kiting was or anything. So it's obvious, you know, it was just a simple error turned into a big problem. <laughs> and and uh that that's all I can do is is say on the on the radio the respect I have with the Coast Guard and that they put everything on the line for me. And that spun it the other way around. <laughs> so I basically I think it was about a hundred thousand dollars of damage to the boat. So oh because I think I was good on the radio and I don't think I I, well, I never saw a bill come from the canoe from the Coast Guard to the boat. <laughs> you know? And and I never asked for my kite bag. I found my pieces of kite on the beach the next day, like pieces inches big. <laughs> like little pieces of my kite all up the beach. So my it was a hundred thousand dollars of damage to the boat and my kite was finished. But oh everybody was safe. Right. That was what was that was the only thing that was important. That is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> that is so insane. It was big. It was, yeah, it was a big one. <laughs> well, the next question I usually ask is what was your biggest oh shit moment? But I think that was the first time we've had one one answer for both questions. Maybe, yeah, I would say maybe, that. yeah that's, that's uh, weird. Weird because... You didn't necessarily need the rescue, but scary as hell because, oh my God. Because it happened, yeah. And, yeah. That's I just... mean, I, I, I could give you a thousand oh shit experiences, but that one, <laughs> shit. <laughs> that was the biggest oh shit. Oh my gosh. Well, my last question for you is what is next for you? Yeah. Well, first of all, walking again. <laughs> I'm walking well. So that's every day I'm four hours, five hours walking on a mountain, down a mountain. So getting strong on my feet again. Uh, you know, I've just been one month now without walking sticks. So I'm finally at a point where I, I basically what I had to, I had to have a prosthetic ankle. So they put a, they, it's a crazy procedure. And <laughs> they, they put a, they cut out the inside your ankle joint. And mm -hmm. they put a plastic device so your ankle moves again because I destroyed the ankle. So it's it looks like it's my ankle, normal ankle from the outside, but on the inside it's uh yeah, it's a prosthetic ankle. So now I gotta slow down the pace of life. I I can't I can still kite surf and snowboard, but I can't do jumps and big impact stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. So I gotta slow the pace down. So that's one of the next steps for me is learning how to slow down. <laughs> and then Two is build the new brand because it's it's three different companies merging into one. It's it's the kite school brand, it's the apparel line brand, and then the villas and real estate brand. And 
merging it all into one project and then we'll do a global club membership so which will be the world's first global club membership kite surfing you know there's a lot of like i said people in the sport you know richard branson kite surfs barack obama guys like there's dads and rich people there's this time anybody you can think of as a kite surf but there's people with you know who have a middle class life or relatively well off and they would rock they, they would pay to have the red carpet rolled out, you know? So that's what our next big step is, is, is putting all the three companies together with a global club membership. So most people spend, we've estimated around 8,000 or 10,000 on their kite surfing vacations every year. You know, most people go on about, if you're real, if you have a normal family life and work life and you just go on vacation, most people go kiting vacation about 25 days a year. So we do 25 days in any of our villas anywhere in the world. We like that one-year membership. You show up at any of our schools and our villas. All you know, we book. We have travel agents booking all your your flights and your accommodation. Well, your accommodation is our villa, and we have all kite brands at the villa, so you don't have to travel with your equipment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a big thing. Every moving kite gear, but if you have every kite brand, brand new top line equipment, you can just. Our clients and global club membership, which would be like the higher clap, they're going to show up. Everything's rolled out. They have their activities managers take care of everything. We'll do nightly barbecues and like dinners out and, and all the activities in the area, taking them whale watching, taking them this and that, right? Biking. So that's the next big step is putting the whole project together into one. The That's going to be a big one. <laughs> That's that's incredible. That is incredible. I will be looking forward to hearing more about that. That's just it's a, it makes sense. It's a smart idea. It's like concierge kiting experience. It's just like awesome. Yeah. It's I, I believe if you can offer a premium service, you're going to have you know, a uh, we already do, you know, in our kite schools alone, we already have, we're, we've been live our website for five years and we have quite a lot of clients relative, but if, if you merge them all together, then, you know, you, you have people booking their villa and then they're booking accommodation and they find your villa. So they, because they book into your villa, you have a kite school in your villa. So they're going to book their lessons in your school. Then you have the shop with your own boutique equipment. So people walking down the street, they walk into your shop because you have a school. They might buy your wetsuit, book their kite surfing lessons, and stay in your accommodation. It's kind of a win. Mm -hmm. So we really want to just cover the whole holiday kite surfing experience, and uh, it's going to be a big project to put that together, like the whole the, the global club membership, and uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This was thank you. awesome. This was an awesome experience. Yeah, it was so nice to talk with you as well. And uh, yeah, and your listeners. Yeah. And that was episode 34. I really hope that you guys enjoyed that. I know I got a lot out of that episode. Just such a history lesson. And it's so great to hear from people that are going into business with something that they're so passionate about. You can really hear in his voice 
how much he cares about what he's working on and I just think that that's really really cool and I can't wait to see where it will take him I will link all of the information about the Kickstarter and all of his other companies involved in kite surfing and his locations and also the article he talks about in Canada in the description and I really hope that you guys enjoyed this week's episode of course we will see you next Monday with a fresh episode thanks so much have a good day guys bye